Nation. Uh, it's actually Monday, June 24th. Uh, it is 1.49 p.m. here on the East Coast. And uh, I don't know what time it is in Seattle, but uh, that's where James is, co-host of the Dose Nation uh, podcast. And, of course, I'm your host, Jake Kettle. James, how are you? I'm doing great, Jake. Thanks a lot. Uh, we got some... Uh, I have some things that I wanted to talk about today that uh, have been bugging me for a long time. And it's really what I... Uh, my personal views... Well, not my personal views, but... Uh, I, I get angry. I mean, I'm a I'm a person who believes in science and the scientific method, and I think science has really uncovered a lot about how our world works, really down to about the, the, the lowest levels that you can get in reality. And one of the methods or one of the fields of science that is really the most fascinating is, is quantum physics. And quantum physics has a lot of play in the New Age community because... People like to invoke quantum physics as a mysterious thing in the universe that shows us that everything is magical in some way. And I'm sure you've heard this before. Of course, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard, you know, people like Deepak Chopra um, talking about quantum physics and consciousness and <laughs> how all consciousness is interrelated. And um, I, I see events, um, you know, psychedelic events or, or pseudo psychedelic events where they say, we're going to have speakers talking about consciousness and reality and non-local consciousness. And you see this, this phrase, non-local consciousness, getting thrown around a lot. And people tend to associate this, this non-local consciousness with quantum physics. And they say things like, quantum physics tells us that all reality and all actions are non-local. So that events happen in one place can have an effect on reality in another place. And they maybe will mention entangled particles or something like that, even if they even get that deep into, into their descriptions. But, um, really that's, I think that's just a lot of bullshit, to be honest with you, because it's a, it's a very bad misinterpretation of what quantum physics actually does. And what I wanted to talk a little bit about is what quantum physics actually says versus what people who misconstrue quantum physics say quantum physics says. Now, I get, um, because I'm kind of a reductionist and I like to explain consciousness in terms of physical systems, not, you know, non-physical systems like mental or spiritual, um, there's, there, I get a lot of blowback from people saying, well, how can you say that consciousness is physical when things like quantum physics or dark energy show us that the universe is more mysterious than we think it is? And I have gotten this argument so many times that I have had to go back to descriptions of quantum physics over and over and over again to make sure I know what I'm talking about. Because I hear this from educated people people who know better, people in academia, people who are scientists. You know, I get sent YouTube videos of scientists saying, you know, quantum physics shows us that reality is non-local, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've, you know, come to uh, some conclusions myself about quantum physics and the people who talk about quantum physics. And uh, I just wanted to go over a little bit about, um, you know, what I've learned. Yeah, now, so, so let me, uh, so before... 
you continue. Let me just put this out there. So I don't know a whole lot about quantum physics. Um, tell me, tell me what you do know. So, so I'm a little ignorant. Actually, I, I, I really only know what you've told me and what I've read, um, and what I've heard through, you know, various interviews about non-local consciousness and, uh, you know, um, I've heard it associated with, uh, remote viewing. Um, I've heard it associated with, um, a variety of different phenomena and other, you know, phenomenology and things like that, or as a way to explain it. Um, but my understanding of it as an actual science is that it, 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 it um, it, it talks about photon interaction. It, 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 it calculates photon interaction or, isn't that right? I mean, I'm on a yeah, very yeah, small level. Photon, um, photon electron interactions are the, right. are the basic building blocks of, of quantum physics. Now, now, and here's another thing that people will tell me. They'll say quantum physics shows you that we create reality by observing it. And if there was no observer, there would be no reality. Have you ever heard that argument before? Um, yeah, well, you know, if there's no nobody... or, or something or something along the lines of we the reality that we perceive is based on our consciousness basically that that by the act of perceiving something we are creating reality and that reality would not exist if there wasn't an observer there to to observe it but you know i mean does that hold weight because look if you and i are are are, are both standing in a room right i mean it doesn't hold weight but you will hear people like graham hancock at a, you know, uh, at a TED talk, you know, or, or Deepak Chopra parroting something along those lines, trying to convince us that reality is this sort of magic illusion that we create with our consciousness. And, uh, it, from a, from a physical, you know, from a, from a, I don't know, a phenomenological standpoint, that is sort of true because we create reality in our brains with our consciousness. But when we observe something with our eyes, we are not creating reality. Um, it's it's our it's out there outside of us, and we can prove it's out there outside of us. And this is actually what quantum mechanics can do. Quantum mechanics can predict the fundamental pieces of reality down to the tiniest, tiniest piece. So when people tell me, or people you know come to me on Facebook or an email, and, and you know give me this argument that. Quantum physics says that reality is mysterious and, you know, ambiguous and vague and we don't have all the answers. What I like to say is quantum physics does the exact opposite. It confirms everything we know about reality. And in fact, it gives us a really good, better definition of the standard model, which is, you know, beyond Newton and beyond Einstein. So, um, um, I've become very fascinated with quantum physics, and uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about off the top is wh- if you ever are listening to a lecture and somebody is talking about the magic of quantum physics, if they do not make a distinction between quantum mechanics, quantum electrodynamics, or quantum entanglement, they are just kind of riffing. Because the quote-unquote, the, the word quantum physics is just a general term. It could relate to anything that uses that uses quantum style math to model physical interactions. So, um, if you hear somebody talking about quantum physics and they can't explain to you the difference between, say, quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics, then you know immediately that this is this is a person who doesn't know what they're talking about. So, so that's test number one. If somebody, if you get into an argument with somebody and they like pull the quantum physics card out of their their pocket. Ask them to explain the difference between quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics. 
And if they look at you with a blank stare, that means that they don't know what they're talking about and they're bullshitting you. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the difference between these, these different interpretations of QM, quantum mechanics, um, starting with the original experiment, the double split experiment, the double slit experiment. Do you know anything about the double slit experiment? Again, very ignorant of this subject. Okay. So back in the, um, I don't know, the 20s or at the turn of the, uh, the 1900s, there was an experiment done to see if light propagated as a wave or a particle. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with this whole wave-particle duality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And people were fascinated by how light propagates because light is, light moves. People think, you know, people, the argument is light has to be a particle because if it's a, if it's a wave, it needs to move through a medium. Waves need to move through a medium. And if light is a wave, it has to move through a medium. And people didn't understand back then that space-time is actually a medium. People thought that space-time, or the vacuum of space, was, was literally nothing. So when, you, when trying to argue that light is a wave, they say, well, how can a wave propagate through nothing? You need to have something that it's, that it's, that it's vibrating through. Like if you, know, you have a wave in the ocean that's in a water. You know, the medium is water. You have a sound wave moving through air. Well, the medium it's moving through is air. If you have a light wave, well, what is that wave moving through? A light wave in a vacuum. Uh, if there's nothing there, how can the wave propagate through that nothingness? So there was this concept of the ether in space. And this was, you know, this is going back to old school uh, physics. And there was an experiment done to see if light propagated as a wave or a particle. So there's this, this famous experiment called the double slit experiment, which anybody can do. And it's, it's basically if you have a light source, a beam, shining through two small slits. Oh, okay. I, th- I, I, I think I've heard of this. A photodetective plate on the back. When you shine the light through those two slits, the light that goes through those slits bends outward like a wave, like a cone, after it goes through those slits. <laughs> And the way that we know it does that is because you can see an, a wave interference pattern on the photodetective plate. And that's, um, you know, when two waves interact with each other, they create an interference pattern. And I'm really fascinated with wave interference patterns, and that's really what psychedelic information theory is based on, is this whole notion of wave interference um, in consciousness. Um, and so this is really the most basic experiment that you can do to demonstrate that light propagates as a wave. You, 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 you isolate two distinct waves of light or two distinct photon streams of light. And instead of acting as a particle that just passes straight through and hits the wall directly in the same spot every time, you know, when you shine a flashlight, it goes out in a cone. It goes out in a cone of light. And that's kind of the way that light propagates, is it goes out in a cone. And um, so this interference pattern on the, on the wall behind these double slits shows that light is a wave and that the photons coming through are interfering with each other in such a way that they make bands. The interference pattern looks like a band. You see strips of light in bands with dark patches in between them, and they're all evenly spaced. And you say, ah, oh, cool, light is a wave. But now here's the weird part is that, and this is the part that everybody gets, gets kind of hung up on. If you say, well, let's figure out which photons are passing through which slit and see if we can, you know, tell, you know, how, how the waves are propagating through each slit. So let's put a detector in the left slit 
So we know if, and, and just release single photons at a time. And you can do the experiment without the detector, and you just release a single photon every second, boop, 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 against the detector, and it will appear in this interference pattern. The photons will will hit the detector plate and make that interference pattern, you know, single dots, all conforming to that interference pattern. They will only show up in the waves, in, I mean, in the wave bands on that interference pattern. Now, the weird thing is, is that if you put a detector in one of those slits, so you can tell which slit the photon went through, the interference pattern disappears. And you say, wait, how can that happen? If you put a detector in there, suddenly it looks like it's moving more like a particle instead of a wave. Now, people can get really bent out of shape over this experiment. And this is sort of the where the whole, when we observe reality, we're changing reality comes from. But there's a really easy explanation for why the interference pattern disappears when you put a detector in one of the slits. And that is because, well, let me first ask you a question. Okay. How can you measure a moving photon without altering its path? I'm not sure you have to answer that question. It's a trick question because you can't. Right. Okay. The only way to measure something is to touch it with a measuring device. Right, and then and, and in by do, and by doing so, you alter its course. You all you that's right. You Even if it's only path. by by a by a point one of a, you know, you, I mean you're still altering the course. That's right. So if you put a detector in the left slit, basically what a detector is is it's it's something that the photon has to pass through that can say, "Ah, a photon has passed through here." And basically, um, you have, you, I mean, every, every detector, every sensor has to, you know, have an electron because, you know, it's made out of atoms and the, the, the orbital shell of every atom is an electron. So when, when light is bouncing off of any surface, basically it's being absorbed by an atom into an electron orbital and then released. And that's, that's basically the, 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 the essence of quantum physics. Or quantum mechanics. When when a photon hits an atom, it knocks into the electron shell. The angular momentum of the electron in that shell, or the electrons in that shell, is increased according to the speed and energy of the photon that hits it. That electron is knocked up into a higher state. It's a, a quantum leap, if you will, into a higher orbital state. And it stays up in that higher orbital state until it decays. And when it decays, it releases a photon. Pretty simple, right? It's like a, it's like a merry-go-round. You jump on the merry-go-round. The merry-go-round spins a little faster when you jump on. You jump off. The merry-go-round goes back to the speed it was going before you jumped on. And that's, that's essentially what happens with an electron shell in a quantum mechanical interaction. So when you pass a photon through the slit with the detector, all the photons coming out of the slit with the detector are now moving in the same way. They have the same polarity and trajectory because they have all passed through the same detector. And because they are all moving in the same way and they have the same polarity, they are not propagating as a wave. They are propagating more like a beam or um, you know, a stream of particles as opposed to a wave. Does, 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 that, does that make sense to you? Yes. <laughs> and because, and because this, the, the light moving through the detector is not propagating like a wave, the interference pattern goes away. You turn the detector off, 
the interference pattern comes back. Now, when you show this to people who don't understand the fundamentals of how, how measurement works, which basically you need to have, you need to have a sensor. Measurement is, is, is reliant on the, on the sensor interacting with what you are measuring. And the only way to measure something is to bounce a photon off of it. So if you have a photon that you're bouncing photons off of, or if you're passing photons through some sort of electromagnetic field, or if you're passing photons through a sensor that, that has an electron detector on it, then you're altering the course of the photon that's passing through that sensor. You cannot measure a photon without altering its trajectory. And beyond that, if you're measuring a stream of photons with the same sensor, all of the photons passing that sensor will then have the same exact characteristics because they have interacted all interacted with the sensor in the exact same way. So really what the double slit experiment is saying is that measurement purely by its own right changes the way that light propagates. So if you try to measure a photon, you change its path. And it seems really simple when you say it that way, but people can misconstrue this experiment so much to say, oh, the wave particle duality shows us that light is this intangible thing that nobody can really get a grasp on, when really it's not. Um, it's the wave particle duality is, is, um, you know, a, a fundamental thing of quantum, quantum mechanics, which is basically light when it's not being observed propagates like a wave. But the minute you try to detect it with some kind of sensor, it falls into line like, like a, like a marching, like a marching line <laughs> because the sensor alters the path of the photon. Now, this doesn't mean that observing something creates reality. It just means that in order to observe something, you must physically touch it. And by the, by the act of physically touching it, you alter its course. So every kind of observation does fundamentally change the course of reality, but it does not create reality. Reality is still out there moving, moving around. And, and every interaction is a measurement. Light bouncing off of my hand is a measurement. If I'm looking at it, if I want to say, where's my hand? And I'm in the dark, I turn the light on. And that photon bouncing off my hand into my eyes is a measurement. Now, I'm using the, my eye as a sensor. And when the photon hits my eye, it's absorbed into my retina. And I'm altering the course of that photon. Now, am I changing reality by sensing that photon? No, that's just where the photon goes. But, and, and so this, the double slit experiment, people like to go back to it over and over and over again and say, oh, reality is fundamentally weird and that, you know, things are ambiguous. And in a superposition, you know, if, if, if light is in a wave, you can say that the light passing through the slit hits the receptor in every place at once because it propagates as a wave. But when you do, when you pass a single photon through there, it actually only hits the, hits the, hits the receptor plate in one single point when it, when, um, the waveform decoheres and you get this quantum decoherence. Now, now really, Light is just light, and light does what it does. And our attempts to model light fall apart because we cannot accurately measure it without changing it. And that's where the wave-particle duality comes from. 
light propagates as a wave. It pretty much is a wave. And the medium that it moves through is space-time. And we now understand that space-time isn't actual stuff. It's a stuff that, that things can, can propagate through. So that, that whole argument about the wave-particle duality is, is, is so misconstrued and so overused that it's just become like a headache to me because people don't understand the, the fact that the sensor fundamentally changes the way that the light wave propagates. Now, do you, do you have any questions about that experiment or do you, do you, does, is anything mysterious there? Well, the, described? this is what I want to ask. So, so, so how do we get from what you've described, right? Mm-hmm. To non-local consciousness, and you know, uh, well, non-local consciousness ma- has to do with entangled particles. Macro, uh, you, you know, uh, you know reality is only there if we see it, and and all this other kind. Well, of see, stuff. that's that's the, the wave particle duality can be misconstrued to say that reality is only there if there's an observer, because unless there's an observer, the light wave does not collapse into a particle point, and it just remains. In all places at once, quote unquote. The light wave is in all places at once, in quotes, until it's observed and then it collapses into a single point. In reality, the light is not in all places at once. It's just moving so fast that to anybody who's not moving at the speed of light, it can be in all places at once because we just don't know. We can't measure it. It's like electrons in an orbit you know you you assume that the electron is like a little grain of sand moving around a pea which is the nucleus and this little grain of sand is whipping around in its orbital shell um, so fast that it appears to be in all places at once it spreads out like like a magnetic field around the shell of the the atom now the only way to tell where that electron is or how fast it's moving is to bounce a photon off the shell. And until you do that, the electron is quote unquote in all places at once. Now it really isn't in all places at once, but as far as we can tell, it appears to be because it's just moving so fast. We can't, we, there's no way to tell where it is. Now, quantum indeterminacy says that, well, you can do, you can do two things when you bounce this photon off. You can either tell where the particle is by getting a static picture, basically like taking a snapshot, or you can tell how fast the electron is moving by taking a series of snapshots and getting an aggregate speed. But you can't do both. You can't ever say for sure exactly where it is and what speed it's moving. You can only know one or the other. And I can, I mean, I, and I, I think I just tried to explain why that is, but I can explain, I can explain it more in a little bit of detail with, with another classical example, if you'd like. Um, so quantum indeterminacy is basically like if you wanted to measure how fast a bullet was going and all you had was a camera, you could take a picture, you could, you know, set up a camera to take a series of pictures when somebody fires a bullet. And say, take a bunch of, like, take five pictures over the course of the, of the bullet's path. And you will see at each point along the way, the bullet has moved a little bit farther over a certain amount of time. And you can make an average saying, okay, between here and here and here and here, the bullet was moving this fast. 
And that's the way, you know, radar guns work, is they bounce photons off of moving objects many times per second. And they take an average of, of the, of the change in distance between the sensor, the radar gun, and the moving thing, the bullet. Now, if you wanted to know exactly where the bullet is at any one time, you would have to take a snapshot. And when you develop the snapshot, you will see, oh, the bullet is three quarters of the way between the gun and the target. But looking at the snapshot, you cannot tell how fast the bullet is moving. Does that make sense? Can you look at right. a snapshot of a bullet frozen in time and tell how fast it's moving? No, you'd have to have multiple snapshots. You would have to have multiple snapshots. Or, right, right, something. So in every single one of those snapshots, you could look at all of them. The bullet is in different places, but none of those snapshots will tell you how fast the bullet is going. The only way to do that is to get an average of the distance it travels between all of those snapshots, and you get you know, an approximation of how fast it was moving at any one spot. But you cannot say for sure that the bullet didn't speed up or slow down a little bit between one or two of these places. So um, trying to get perfect estimates about the speed and the location of an object that's moving very quickly, like an, like an electron or a photon, depends on the accuracy of the sensor. And a sensor's accuracy can only go up to the speed of light. It cannot exceed the speed of light. No sensor can exceed the speed of light. So if you're trying to sense something that's moving at or near the speed of light, like a photon or an electron, there's no way that you can capture enough, quote-unquote, snapshots to tell exactly where it is and how fast it's going because your sensor cannot move fast enough. Now, that's where quantum indeterminacy comes from. And this only applies to things that are moving very close to the speed of light. And, you know, um, you know, for measuring things like a bullet, we, we probably could get an exact speed and location if we took enough pictures. You know, if we took high speed film of the bullet moving in slow motion, you know, at thousands of frames per second, we could tell maybe precisely exactly how fast the bullet was moving at every, at every frame. But you can't do that with a photon or an electron because you cannot capture that many snapshots. You know, you can only capture one and then the photon's gone and then the electron's moved. So quantum indeterminacy is one of these things where, you know, um, again, the models that we have for measuring and predicting the speed and location of tiny particles are not good enough to be accurate to, um, you know, to know precisely where the electron is and how fast it's going. We can only tell one or the other. And that's just because, you know, the limitations of the speed of light. You know, you can't measure something faster than the speed of light. You can't, you can't make measurements faster than light moves. So measuring things moving at the speed of light causes some problems. And that's, that's, that's where quantum indeterminacy comes from. So... Those are essentially, um, you know, those are the, those are the two basic building blocks of, of quantum mechanics. Um, and, and really the reliability of the sensor is built into the mathematics of quantum mechanics. You really have to know the reliability of the sensor, um, and include that in your math to, 
give yourself a clear margin of error for where the photon is or how fast it's going or where the electron is. So, so let's let's just say so. Let's just ask this question then. So, really, what what quantum physics is not supposed to be used to describe human consciousness or um, the non-locality of it and all these things. It's it's it's, it's been misinterpreted. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the mantras of of quantum physicists, whenever they hear, um, you know, these kind of what what I call woo meisters, what has been popularly known as woo meisters, like Deepak Chopra saying, "Consciousness is this, and consciousness is that, and quantum physics tells us that this," you know, that's all kind of woo woo misinterpretation. The mantra is, quantum mechanical properties cannot be scaled up to classical classical interactions. Like consciousness. Consciousness is a classical interaction. And when I say classical interactions, I mean like Newtonian interactions of, of, of billiard balls or, you know, um, you know, balls smashing into each other and, and, you know, momentum being conserved through, through these kinetic, kinetic energy transfers. Um, there are some classical events which can be modeled with quantum mechanical properties or demonstrate some quantum mechanical properties. But most classical events, everything in the macroscopic world that we see that's not a photon-electron interaction, those are not explained by quantum physics, and you don't need quantum physics to explain those. And quantum physics really has nothing to do with any of those. And then you get to people saying, Oh well, um, well let's let's before we jump to entangled particles, let's talk about um, um, let's talk about virtual particles, which is what I think is the coolest thing about about quantum physics and quantum electrodynamics. And do you know anything about virtual particles? I don't know. Okay, so. This interaction that I that I explained, when a photon hits an electron shell and the electron pops up into a higher state, makes the quantum leap, and then it decays back down into its original quantum state and it releases this photon. That sounds like a classical interaction, like you can explain that like a tetherball, right? The electron is a tetherball and, you know, a photon hits it and the tetherball spins faster and then, you know, it throws out something and then it slows back down to its original speed. But in actuality, there's a little bit more going on there because when, uh, say, take a hydrogen atom, really simple, a single electron, you know, single uh, proton, single neutron, a photon hits a hydrogen atom, knocks that electron up into a higher shell. As it decays, it should just cleanly release a photon. Boo! And then, simple, the interaction is over. But when observing this interaction, scientists discovered that hydrogen doesn't always throw off the photon in the energy spectrum that it was expected to. And this caused some puzzlement for a while. And it took a, it took, it took, um, you know, a lot of quantum physicists, you know, scrawling math down and doing thought experiments to realize that as the electron orbital shell is decaying, before it throws off this photon, it may, it may bubble out an infinite number of virtual particles that it then reabsorbs before the photon is released. Now, let me say that again. As, so the electron hits the orbital, I mean, the, the photon hits the electron orbital shell. The electron is kicked up into a higher orbit. 
And as it's decaying, instead of just releasing a photon in one clean, uh, one clean action, it begins to bubble out virtual particles, which are then reabsorbed. And then finally the photon goes out. Now, you may ask yourself, why does it do that? And, or how do we know that it does that? <laughs> And it, when you, when you say, when you say it like that, it sounds crazy. It's, it's releasing an infinite number of virtual particles. Yeah, it could release an infinite number of virtual particles. And the virtual particles have distinct characteristics. You can have a really light virtual particle that exists for a long period of time, like a couple nanoseconds, which is a long period of time in, in quantum mechanics. Or you can have a really heavy virtual particle. That's reabsorbed in, you know, a frac, I mean, just a fraction of a nanosecond, a femtosecond. And the heavier the virtual particle, the shorter it lives. And the lighter the virtual particle, the longer it lives. And this bubbling of virtual particles, um, that precedes the photon release is called the jittering effect. And there's a German word for it called like Witter Weiberung or something like that. And excuse my German because I'm not. I haven't used this term in a long time, but, <laughs> but scientists said, you know, scientists were trying to figure out why they were observing this jittering effect before the photon was released in, in this hydrogen model that I'm, that I, that I was giving off because their, their math wasn't adding up. So this, so Richard Feynman and his crew came along and they, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen these Feynman diagrams that show like a photon, they're like arrows that split off, that show virtual particles like spinning in loops and being reabsorbed before they collide together and the photon is released. Feynman diagrams are very very famous. Feynman won a Nobel Prize for this. And basically, by adding this mechanic of these virtual particles popping in and out of existence as the electron decays, they were able to predict the spectrum of light radiating from hydrogen atoms down to nine decimal places which is an order of magnitude and uh, uh, better than basically any other measurement science, science makes. And a margin of error smaller than any other measurement that science has ever made, which is why quantum electrodynamics, this, this, this process of, of electrons decaying and these virtual particles bubbling up and then the photon being released, quantum electrodynamics is often called the crown jewel of physics because... It essentially verifies everything that we've come to know about the standard model. And by using quant QED, quantum electrodynamics, we can tell precisely to, like I said, nine decimal places, what the spectrum of light that will be radiating off of any element, any atom that you have we can predict exactly what the spectrum of light radiating off of that is and exactly what type of virtual particles will be bubbling out of it before that photon is released. And because we can make those predictions, we can look at a star light years across the galaxy, and just by measuring the frequency of light coming from it, we can say, we can say oh, that has hydrogen and carbon and oxygen in that, in that star, or bouncing off of that planet. Because we know if blue light is coming off of a planet, that it must contain these elements and that those simple measurements 
uh, of measuring the frequency of light that bounces out, that bounces off of an atom when you, when you, when you hit it with a photon. That confirms everything that we know about the standard model. Quantum physics confirms everything that we know about reality. It does not make it vague or mysterious. It is the most precise measurement and description for the way reality acts that we know. So when people say, oh, quantum physics tells us that the universe is mysterious and weird, I say, no, quantum physics is the most precise measurement that we can make to know that, that reality is the way that we predict it to be. And um, I, I, I can't stress this enough. You know, I, I get really mad when people say, um, oh, quantum physics does this one thing that quantum physics does not do at all. It's like... Um, you know, like I made this, I made this analogy to you before. Imagine that you're uh, uh, somebody, an exogeologist studying Mars, and you've spent your whole life studying the the makeup of the surface of Mars, and you know all of the elements that that Mars is made out of, and you know how heavy it is, and what the diameter is, and you know everything about Mars. I mean, you're just an expert on Mars. And then one day, some kook sees a snapshot taken from a planetary observer that shows a shadow of a face. And suddenly this guy becomes the expert on faces on Mars. You know, I'm talking about Richard Hoagland. Right, 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 with the um, the pyramids and the faces. Yeah, Richard Hoagland that, yeah. didn't know anything about Mars. He he didn't mill he didn't build any Mars expeditionary projects. He never looked through a telescope. He was not an astronomer. He just saw a snapshot of a face and said, aliens are on Mars. Now, how do you think the people who studied Mars for their whole life felt about Richard Hoagland? Probably didn't like, well, I would venture to say they probably didn't like him very much. <laughs> because here's Richard Hoagland testifying in front of the United Nations that we need to go to Mars right away and look for these ancient pyramids built in the shape of faces because these reptile monkey aliens have left us messages. And Richard Hoagland convinced a lot of people that, quote-unquote, weird stuff was happening on Mars. When anybody from the Mars Observatory or the Mars Observation or the, the Mars Rover Project would tell you, oh, no, this is just a shadow from the sun setting. You know, this isn't, this isn't a face. This, isn't, this is just a shadow of a, of a hill, of a small hill. And what I'm basically saying is, People who misconstrue quantum physics to say quantum physics tells us that reality is an illusion that we create with our consciousness, they're like Richard Hoagland, looking at a looking at a shadow of a face on Mars and not understanding what they're seeing. Because quantum physics doesn't say any of that stuff. And you can go read all of the Wikipedia Wikipedia pages on quantum physics and never once will they mention consciousness. And and this is, you know, this is really what bothers me about this whole woo movement in the psychedelic community that really wants to embrace, embrace quote-unquote, quantum physics as some sort of magical property of the universe, when in fact it's not a magical property of the universe. It's one of the most pre precise mechanisms we have for modeling ele photon-electron interactions. And uh, so... Um, one of the biggest offenders in this area is Reality Sandwich. They're constantly publishing stuff about non-local consciousness and, you know, whatever. Stuff that I can't even bring myself to read 
because it, it makes me so frustrated. Not only that, that people are writing this stuff, but that people repost it and send it to me as, you know, quote unquote proof of something when in fact it's, it's, it's basically just all garbage. And anytime you see somebody mentioning non-local consciousness and quantum physics, you should know immediately that that person does not know what they're talking about and that they're just BSing you with some line of, of, of fantasy. Um, so there's another, there's another piece that I want, I mean, so we could go on and talk about Schrodinger's cat. I'm sure you've heard the story, the, the, the story of Schrodinger's cat. Uh, yeah, no, that, now, now, now that one I am familiar with, but you know, it, it's dead, but it's not dead and it might be alive and it's in this weird suspended state or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's called a superposition. Right, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And the Schrodinger's cat thing is basically, say you have, um, a sensor hooked up to a vial of poison. And basic, and what the sensor is, is sensing is the electron decay of a radioactive particle. So you have a radioactive particle that's going to decay in the next 24 hours. But we don't know when it's going to decay. Just sometime in the next 24 hours, it's going to decay and throw off an elect, and then throw off a photon. And when it does, that photon will hit the sensor and release the poison. So you put that mechanism in a box with a cat, and you close the lid. Now, for the next 24 hours, the cat is in a superposition. It is both alive and dead, because until we open the box and look at the cat, we will not know if that electron has decayed, and that photon has been released, and the poison has been released. So, from a purely mathematical standpoint of making accurate predictions about the universe... We cannot precisely predict if the cat is alive or dead at any one time. From a mathematical modeling standpoint, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. It's got a 50-50 chance. Now, people can say, oh, wow, when you put Schrodinger's cat in the box, it enters the superposition state where it's alive and dead. No, the cat is alive until the electron decays and <laughs> it dies. What the, what the experiment is modeling is the fact that you cannot predict exactly when that electron is going to decay. And until it does decay, anything that is reliant on that decay is put into a superposition, where it's either or, or both. And, uh, you know, people really get rung up about superpositions and Schrodinger's cat and how things can be both one or the other to the point where Niles Bohr in, in the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says that what happens actually is before that wave function collapses, the universe splits into two separate and distinct universes where in one universe the cat is alive and in the other universe the cat is dead. And that's called the multiple universes theory. Whereas for every wave function that exists until it collapses, the universe splits into two, two separate and distinct paths. So that the universe that we're living in is just one universe that's constantly spawning multiple threads that are different universes where the cat lived. You know, say the cat dies in this universe. Well, there's another parallel universe where the cat actually lived. And the, the parallel you is petting the cat while 
this worldview is crying because the cat is dead. Now, that's just crazy, right? Do you believe that there's multiverses? I don't know. I mean, it's not something I've studied, but I would, I would, uh, I, would, I it's an interesting concept, but I, I don't know if I have an opinion really either way on the, on it. So, so the multiverse theory is basically, um, you know, another thought experiment that if you want to take as a point of faith that the universe is basically a quantum mechanical wave function, then the only way to describe it accurately is to say that, yes, many universes spawn with the collapse of every wave function. And every possibility that can ever be is is happening all at once in in parallel universes. And I'm not and and, and please note that I'm not saying another dimension because a dimension is a different physical thing. Um, a parallel universe is a universe just like our own, except it's it's separated by the fact that we we're we're in a slightly different time stream or or a slightly different probability stream. Now, the people who put together the Copenhagen interpretation were really beating the fact that the multiverse theory is correct, even though it's just based on a mathematical model that doesn't necessarily represent the way that reality actually is. It just represents the limitations of what we can predict, considering the quantum indeterminacy that we're dealing with in our measurement devices. And this goes back to the quantum indeterminacy and the wave-particle duality thing. Now, do you believe that when the cat goes into the box, it is both alive and dead? I don't see how that could be possible. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. And really, if you are going to take that leap of faith that the cat is both alive and dead, just because the math says so, you're really taking a huge leap of faith there because it goes counter to everything that we know about reality. And that's what Deepak Chopra and the Whoopmeisters like to say, is that this experiment shows that reality is far more mysterious than we could ever imagine, when in fact it's not. It's just that the math cannot possibly predict all of the, all of the uh, potential outcomes of that wave function collapsing down to, you know, time, down to the exact time and the exact speed because of these quantum indeterminates. And... Um, those, those, those little simple things can be misconstrued to say that, you know, we, we live in a multiverse where reality is magical and waves and particles are, you know, are mysterious until they're observed. And who knows, there could be, light could be doing a little jig behind our head until we observe it. And that's, that's all just, you know, crazy misconstruing. Of the, of the limitations of our mathematical models. The other thing about quantum, quantum mechanics is that in this double slit experiment, they do not factor in the energy and speed and trajectory of light. Light, in these, the, the, the quantum slit experiment, in the mathematics, light is reversible. Light could theoretically back up through that slit and the, the experiment could reverse itself and the math still works. The math is time independent, meaning that um, because the because the photons move so quickly and the energy that they have is so small, they're considered to be you know insignificant. But they're not insignificant. The fact that light has direction and trajectory is you know it's it's inarguable. 
even quantum physicists will say, well, yeah, the, you know, the math doesn't take into account that stuff. And really, the fact that it's time independent is just, you know, easier to calculate. Or it's easier to demonstrate and model in mathematical terms. It doesn't mean that light can actually reverse itself and that there's reverse causality. Even though the math, even though you could play all sorts of tricks with the math and say, oh, yeah, there is reverse causality, that doesn't mean that the model accurately reflects the reality. It just means it's the best model that we have, even though it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take into account these, uh, you know, speed and vector and the energy of the photon and the fact that it can't reverse itself just instantaneously. Now, there are some things in quantum physics that, you know, if you, if you could go faster than the speed of light, you could reverse things. You could go back and be like the flash and undo things that were done in real time, but you can't go faster than the speed of light. So um, the fact that quantum mechanics is time independent shouldn't confuse people into thinking that reality is time independent because it's not. It's just the model. It's just the mathematical model is time independent. Now, the final thing that I wanted to talk about was this quantum entanglement. And this is the one that is is the biggie because this is where the whole idea of non-local consciousness comes from. Now, can you explain to me how non-local consciousness and remote viewing works? Um, well, I, I, and, I, and I've heard a couple of different interpretations, and I don't think every remote you, viewer... You've interviewed remote yeah. viewers. You've talked to, like, the, and, the and, big guys in the field. And, I mean, you they don't all... Well, first of all, let's, let, let me say, they don't all agree with each other completely. Um, so there is some, you know, difference between some but the first time i encountered non-local consciousness and remote viewing was through um russell targ who worked at sri and um he had talked about uh how consciousness is non-local and this is one of the reasons that people are able to um remote view is because they can you know use their consciousness to um extend <clears throat> And see places that, that, um, that are farther away because consciousness is non-local and because there are no restrictions on consciousness. So through, um, you know, this manual or this process, you could achieve, um, you know, being able to see the remote target, um, you know, through, through this process and, <clears throat> you know, because consciousness is non-local, because, um, you can, because you can leave your own inner consciousness and go out in, into the world and see, you know, these other things, but through this process of, um, you know, uh, controlled process, I should say, it's CRV, controlled viewing. Yeah, and, and really there is, I mean, to be honest, there is no such thing as non-local consciousness. People throw the word around a lot, but it just doesn't exist. It's like saying, um, you know, when I rev my car engine and there's RPMs, um, that's there's those are non-local RPMs. Well, they're non-local uh, they to could, you. They could affect any car anywhere. When I rev my engine, that revving is actually connected to all cars all over the world. So that when I rev my engine in Seattle, your car engine in New Jersey can sense that because it's non-local. Now, does that make any sense to you? No. Okay. So when I say I, I rev up my consciousness and it's non-local, my consciousness is basically an engine that I rev up every morning when I wake up. It revs up. I turn on. You can measure the revs in my brain. You can measure the brain waves with an EEG. 
it revs up, I become aware, I become consciousness, and when I fall asleep, it revs down, and I become unconscious. And consciousness is completely a local phenomenon. It happens entirely in your head, and this can be demonstrated in so many ways. It's, it's, it's really silly. And in fact, trying to demonstrate that consciousness is non-local is just a big it's just a big failure. Nobody's ever been able to do it. And there's been all sorts of experiments that people send me that say, oh, well, you know, there's this random number generator that showed, you know, two hours before the World Trade Center was hit, uh, it started generating all these weird patterns. But that doesn't prove anything about non-local consciousness. And in fact, when you look at that experiment, you can look at the pattern generator and see that it generated all sorts of random number strings earlier that were similar to the one that it, you know, it produced on September 11th, where nothing happened afterwards. So a lot of these experiments that try to demonstrate non-local phenomena or non-local consciousness or some sort of interconnectedness, they're all kind of cherry-picking data and they don't hold water when you try to to to, to look at them further. And to solidify where, it and put it together. Where this non-local thing comes from is there's this, these things called entangled particles. And what happens is there are some elements that when you, when you hit them with a photon and the electron pops up into its, its higher orbital shell, when it decays, it doesn't release a single photon. It releases two photons in succession. Boom, boom. In two different frequencies of light. And these two photons, as they're released, have properties. They have, you know, like I said, the frequency of light and they have things like spin. And they're called they can be spin-correlated or spin-anti-correlated. Uh, there's all sorts of different ways that particles can be entangled. But basically, all it is is, is, is is it's a system where when the electron decays and the photons are released, the single photon that was absorbed is then released as two distinct photons. And those two distinct photons each have their own properties. So that if you are watching the decay of this electron and you know that two photons are released at the same time, and you only sense one of them, you know for a fact that the other... So you only sense one of them, and you say, oh, this is... So say you have a, a an entangled particle system that when you bounce a photon off of it, it decays into a red particle and a green particle. Which is they have, you know, this is the, the standard type of entangled particle test they do is they have a type of crystal that they use that releases, um, photons into a different spectrum. It's like a pink and a green. So if you observe the photons coming off of this, this entangled pair and you see that one of them is pink, you know without even having to observe the other particle that it's green. And so say you have an entangled particle setup where the particles spit out in exact opposite directions at the speed of light. But you never know which photon is being spit out in which direction. You have only one detector a hundred miles away. This is theoretical. They don't, they don't actually set this up. It's set up in very small scales. But say you have one set up a hundred miles away. <laughs> you can tell when the particle hits your detector 100 miles away. 200 miles away in the other direction is another particle traveling away from you, from the same entangled pair. However, instantly, when the first particle hits your receptor 
you say, oh, that's a pink particle, you know that the particle moving away from you at 200 miles an hour is a green particle, even though you're making that measurement faster than the speed of light, because there's no way that you can measure that particle moving away from you. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. So you can't measure the particle moving away from you because it's moving at the speed of light. And in order to measure it, you would have to be able to move faster than it and catch it and measure it. But if you're measuring the particle moving towards you and you say, oh, it's a pink photon, you know that the one moving away from you is green. And the fact that you can make that measurement instantly contradicts the properties of being able to make faster than light speed measurements because there's a hidden variable in the pink photon because it's entangled. Because the pink photon is entangled with the green photon, which when you measure the, the, the location and the spin of the pink photon, you suddenly know the location and spin of the green photon because it's anti-correlated. You know, if you, if you measure, oh, this one is pink spin up, you know that the other particle is green spin down. Or if this one is pink spin down, you automatically know that the, the other one is green spin up. And the way I like to describe this with the classical mechanical, uh, uh, classical mechanics is say you have a pachinko machine that every time you put a quarter in it, it releases a red gumball and a green gumball. And then those gumballs go down two long pipes and land in buckets a mile away at the same time. You don't know whether the green one is going to land in the bucket or the pink one is going to land in the bucket. But once you see the color of the the, the the gumball that lands in your bucket, you know immediately that the red gumball is landing in the other bucket, even though that's a faster-than-light-speed measurement. Now, how does this relate to non-local consciousness? It doesn't. It doesn't relate at all. Entangled particles are a very, very simple phenomenon. In fact, the only measurements you can make with entangled particles are these things like color and spin. And, you know, there, there may be, there's maybe only a couple different variables in a quantum mechanical sense that you can, you can measure with this entangled phenomenon. And this is the kicker. You cannot use entangled particles to send information at faster than light speed. All you can detect is the hidden variable. Now, I don't know why Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. Because using the word spooky caused people to have all sorts of weird misconceptions about what entangled particles were. They thought, oh, they're magic. If you have entangled particles and you change the spin of one, then the, then the, then the spin of the other one automatically changes. No, it, that, that's not what happens. Entangled particles are their own separate distinct particles. The only thing that's entangled about them is that we know beforehand that they come in pairs. And by looking at one of the pairs, one of the set of the pair, you know the properties of the other pair because of the correlation or the anti-correlation, you know, if, if there's, if they're opposite pairs. So that whole thing about, you know, non-locality and being able to sense hidden variables and spooky action at a distance, it's really just a very, very basic like, you know, like, again, it's like a mathematical trick that shows how you can make measurements in these entangled systems at faster than light speeds. 
And there, it really has nothing to do with consciousness. There is no part of consciousness that's entangled. There are no entangled particles in consciousness. Our consciousness is not releasing photons in, you know, pink and red spectrums that are, in, are entangled. And you don't have photons or electrons or any particles in your brain that are entangled with somebody else's brain. It just doesn't work that way. And even if you did, even if you and I were staring at an entangled set of photons, and you were absorbing all the green photons, and I was absorbing all the anti-correlated pink photons, we would still not be able to use those entangled particles to create some sort of telepathy between us, because there is no inherent connection between those entangled particles, other than the fact that we know beforehand that they come in pairs. And if we didn't know beforehand that they came in pairs, they would not be entangled. They would just be another particle. So the mysterious, the, the mysterious mysteries of quantum physics and quantum mechanics are really not that mysterious when you study the math. And it took me a long time to convince myself that this was the case, because every time somebody comes to me with this article, I mean, this, this argument, oh, but you're not taking into account non-locality in quantum physics, I would have to scratch my head and say, well, maybe I'm not taking into account, and I'd go back and I'd read through all the quantum physics papers and all about entangled particles, and then I'd go, no, I'm not missing anything. And people might say, well, James, do you think that you're smarter than Deepak Chopra or, you know, other physicists that, you know, or other people who use quantum physics to describe non-local phenomena? And I don't say I'm smarter than them. I just think I have a more realistic view of what quantum mechanics models and what it doesn't model. And keeping that realistic view and being able to sniff out the, the people who misuse quantum physics to you know, basically say that the world is magic or the world is made of vibration. You know, the world is made of vibration, but, you know, something has to be vibrating, which is where string theory comes from. You know, if all particles are vibrations, you ask, well, what is it that's vibrating? And vibrations are physical. So if something's, if there's a vibration out there, that doesn't mean it's like a magical, non-physical thing. It just means that there's something vibrating. You know, and so, uh, you know, I don't want to get into string theory, but that's where, that's essentially where quantum physics led is that they, you know, they said if these things are like vibrating at high energy, these subatomic particles, there must be something vibrating. And what vibrates? Strings vibrate. You know, that's how we get music. You get, you know, you make a guitar with strings that vibrate, that's where music comes from. And so the whole theory behind string theory is that all particles are tiny little strings vibrating. And if they're vibrating at one frequency and spinning in one direction, they're one type of particle. And if they're vibrating at another frequency and spinning in another direction, they're another kind of particle. And, you know, that, and then that moves into quantum gravity. You get str these strings interacting with each other in, 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 in ways, uh, you know, commensurate with the, the laws of physics and gravity and that's you know you get these 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 theories of quantum gravity which is still an evolving field and string theory is still an evolving field field because really there's a lot of string theory that can never be measured or tested because it's too high energy and it's it's too small a scale but um i think that's enough on quantum physics for this week um, yeah, I, I, I hope that you all thought it was educational. Unfortunately, my knowledge <laughs> because, of it is very limited. I'm sure there's some of you out there that have sat in lectures where people, you know, say something about quantum physics and the vibrational energy of matter and the world is all an illusion that we create through observation, which is just all garbage. 
It's just all garbage. Whenever you hear somebody bring up these, these, you know, these arguments or the, these lines of thinking, you can just immediately dismiss them as garbage. And not only that, you can dismiss the speaker as garbage because if they're willing to go that length to misconstrue quantum physics to claim that the world is magical and we don't understand it, they are either ignorant or lying to you. And you have to be the one that makes a decision whether they're ignorant or lying to you because, um, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to claim that the people out there who are using these things are ignorant or liars, but they're either one or the other because they don't know what they're talking about. So, and you can say James Kent said so. <laughs> yes, but not Jay Kettle. No. no. <laughs> right. And the only reason I feel confident in saying this is, like I said, I've had to go back and study this over and over and over and over and over again when people throw quantum physics in my face as some sort of counter to something that I'm trying to say about the brain. And I know for a fact that quantum physics does not do any of the things that these Wu Meisters say it does. And this it's is much more I... simple. It's much more. It's much simple. It's very simple mathematical models. If you want to spend the time to learn the math and understand the math, you will realize, oh, it's not that complex. You know, and There's... and and this is what I'll say. Uh, you know, as someone who is deeply interested in philosophy and uh, religion and spirituality and metaphysics and all these different kinds of things. Um, you know, I, I've, I've never tried to, <laughs> to use, uh, quantum physics to back up any of those things because I don't think that there's, uh, really a, a, a connection or that there needs to be one, um, in my opinion. Yeah, there's no reason that the brain has adapted to sense quantum mechanical interactions. Well, the other thing is that I, I mean, I mean, even, even, uh, Without non non local consciousness and all this other thing, I mean, I mean, taking that out of it, I mean, there's still phenomena that happens in the universe that, uh, for some people, is enough to convince them to believe certain things, and that's fine. Um, but I think it's when you try to tie things together that m shouldn't be tied together that you run into these problems. Yeah, and really, um, when people say that quantum physics is mysterious and it, you know, it blows apart everything that we know about reality. And it shows that at the core, the universe is fundamentally mysterious. You just have to back them up and say, no, quantum mechanics does the opposite of that. It confirms everything that we understand about reality. And it is the most precise measurement that we can make on about reality. And, and that's really where it begins and ends is that precision. It is a precision instrument for modeling high speed interactions. And and that's all it is. It's not mysterious. It's not a force in the universe that's going to make consciousness non-local in this big communal thing. It is just math for modeling photon-electron interactions. And that's it, man. I'm sorry to say that the universe isn't mysterious and magical like that, but it's just not. It's just not. Well... It's, you know, and in some ways that's sad, but... I still think it's damn cool. I mean, the whole the whole part about virtual particles bubbling off of um, electron decay is just crazy to me. I mean, the fact that in fact that virtual virtual particles pop in and out of existence all the time, and they only exist for such a fraction of a second that they can hardly even be measured, except as this sort of secondary jittering effect. Um, it's just crazy to me. I mean. <laughs> I wish we could capture a virtual particle and, you know, and say, here's my virtual particle collection, but, you know, reality just doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't, unfortunately. 
All right, people. Well, enjoy your non-local consciousness. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'll be sending you non-local waves uh, this week. Yeah, and we're gonna we're getting back to guests uh, in the next couple of weeks, so that's uh, enough of Jake and I jabbering about stuff for a while. Yeah, um, and but you know, but then we'll get back to jabbering again at some point. Yeah, you know, some people may enjoy the jabbering more than the guests, so who knows? Yeah, and and uh, and if you do, if you have an opinion, if you have a comment, if you have something that you want to say, uh, there's an email form on our website that you can contact us through, or you can just go right to the uh, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash dose nation like it and send us a message or post on yeah, our wall like and we'll i said see i'm it. not a quantum physicist and i'm not an expert i just know what i read and if you are a quantum physicist and you know a lot or you have studied quantum physics and and you know if i got something wrong or you want to add something or if you want to pose an argument to me that's fine but i will not accept any arguments about quantum mechanics or quantum physics from somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about who can't explain just the basic math that's on the Wikipedia page. If you don't know that, then shut up about quantum physics because you don't know what you're talking about. Right, and you know, <laughs> and this is why I've said, you know, my 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 main passion and interest is philosophy and I, you know, sometimes science is a subject that I just prefer not to touch. Well, because you know, I, it can be confusing. Well, well, really the, well the other thing is that I know that I that I don't know enough about it, and I know that I don't have the you know enough of an understanding of it to utilize it in any of my philosophical discourse. So right. why make and myself really look not, like an it's asshole? It's really not that hard. It's really not that hard when you just when you know when you spend the time to study it and get the basics. It's 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 not as confusing as people as people like to think it is. And you know, and I I I, I blame a lot of the people in the quantum physics field for propagating these myths or not properly correcting them because I think a lot of them kind of smugly enjoy the fact that people consider quantum mechanics to be this magical, confusing thing. I mean, I think there's they take a sense of pride in knowing that it's it's not that way and sort of letting people ride with the myth. I mean, and there's there are there are certainly worse offenders out there than others, but um but I am, I am not. I mean, I've let people ride with the myth long enough, and I don't. I just can't stand it anymore. So, quantum physics, people, it's way cooler than you think it is. It is. Well, thank you all for joining us. Uh, it has uh, been a pleasure. I'm your host, Jake Kettle. Thanks for joining us, and of course, with me as always, and uh, the main. Uh, talking for today's show, James Kent, uh, author of Psychedelic Information Theory and founder of Dose Nation. James, thanks it's for been, uh, being with it's us. It's been here. great, man. Yeah, no, I, and I'm and I'm glad that you uh, got that out of the way and that we had a and that we talked about that because I th- because that was a long time coming and you and I had had many conversations about about this topic. So. Yeah, and just the number of people who come at you in you know discussion groups online. You know, and they pull this card out of their hat and says, well, quantum mechanics, this, and you just think, oh my god, not again. <laughs> well, you'll be seeing, you'll hopefully be seeing us again next uh, next week. Yeah, we've got a great guest for next week, so uh, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but, uh, no, but you'll, for sure. you'll find out soon enough. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great week. 